Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, that's kind of the thing, though. It's like, like, why am I becoming softer? I'm like, yeah, I'm spending more time at home. Yeah, I'm playing with my daughter more. Like, maybe I'll wind up being more emotional and those kinds of things. But now I'm sort of like, is that softer? Because like, when it comes down to it, like, you know, if I have to bike to Alaska in terrible conditions, like, I still can, you know, like, that's, that's fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I don't know, like, is that? I don't know, we'll see. Like, I think I'm capable of the same things if, if I want to, the question is whether or not you want to. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Alex Honnold. Alex needs very little introduction. He's arguably one of the best rock climbers in the world and is best known for his solo ascent of El Capitan, which was documented in the Oscar-winning film Free Solo. I met Alex on a National Geographic expedition to Greenland in 2022, and then we worked together again on another project in 2023 in Alaska for National Geographic. We agreed at the time that we'd record a podcast, and it took a while, but now it's done and here it is. In this conversation, we cover a lot of subjects. We talk about Alex's background and how he got into climbing, but then we gloss over the more obvious topics and a lot of the things that have been talked about in other podcasts and in the movies and films. And instead, we talk about Alex's transition to fatherhood and how he now finds adventures close to home. We explore his partnership with Tommy Caldwell, and we also talk about the Honnold Foundation and how he became an environmentalist and in some ways an activist. If you're listening to this episode but would like to be able to watch the conversation in vision, then you can head to our Substack page at The Adventure Podcast and subscribe to check it out. Before we begin, I'd like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organization working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help, and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Alex Honnold. Um, we'll just get on with it, shall we? We shall. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. I know you are a busy man. Um, I think we will start in the logical place at the very start. If you can introduce birth. yourself. Tell me. Birth, yes, birth. Um, <laughs> we'll avoid birth. We'll skip the teenage years and we'll just go with who are you and what <laughs> do you think? Uh, I am Alex Arnold and I am a professional rock climber. Ace. And I think it, you know, it goes without saying that probably most people listening to this episode know who you are and what you do in detail. Um, I think if it's cool with you, and we haven't talked about this beforehand, but you know, you've done a lot of podcasts, people can listen to a lot of podcasts. 
I thought we could kind of freestyle this one a little bit today and maybe talk a bit about Alaska this summer and the stuff we did together, but also maybe a bit about um, the foundation and your views on activism and all of those things we've talked about in base camps in two different countries and see where we end up. Um, cool. You're just you're just gonna try to get me all riled up talking about environmental things and just ranting for for a while. Yes, I am. You're you're, you're aiming to record the rant that gets me canceled. <laughs> Gold. I don't know if it, I don't know if you've ever said anything to me that would get you canceled. Maybe no, I don't, uh, I don't think so. But but you never know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, you, um, you get me fired up enough. We'll just see. <laughs> Your views on Tommy Caldwell's activism is a solid place to start. No. <laughs> Um, no, let's go back in time a little bit. I think where I'd like to start is, um, you know, Free Solo exists. Everything that happened after you, after Free Solo, um, it's obvious, um, you became kind of something of a celebrity and now you live your life as a professional rock climber. But when did expeditions start to feature in your life as a rock climber? Oh, I mean, there's a, expeditions have been part of my climbing world since as soon as since since I was sponsored basically um in the in the broader sense of expeditions I mean before I had any kind of sponsors then an expedition felt like driving along the the western U.S. you know I mean basically my scale of expeditions was way smaller but um but I became sponsored by the North Face in 2007 and I think my first trips abroad actually I think my first trip was 2007 or maybe 2008 um, going to the Czech Republic, which, you know, is hardly an expedition, but it was kind of a big climbing trip at the time. And it was a very different style of climbing. So I learned a lot. Um, and then from there, I mean, I typically did at least one big trip abroad every year as a climber. And then as that broadened into going to the mountains, what people typically think of as expeditions, then I was kind of doing one trip like that a year. You know, in, in some ways, I've always felt like expeditions are kind of like eating your vegetables as a climber. You know, it's like the thing that you're that you have to do that makes you appreciate sport climbing the rest of the year. Well, that's kind of why I want to ask because I think for lots of people who I've spoken to on this podcast and otherwise, expeditions are the thing they're gunning for. It's like the be all and end all for them. Everything else is training for those moments. It doesn't seem like that's the case for you. No, I mean, I I don't know. Yeah, that, that's fair. That's fair. I go on expeditions slightly because I feel like I should. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and they are amazing. They're, uh, you know, depending where you're going, it's incredible opportunities. You can do first ascents in different parts of the world. It's beautiful. It's, uh, you know, I mean, expeditions are incredible. And, you know, and I am grateful for the opportunity to go. But in general, I love the day-to-day of climbing. Like, I love going sport climbing. I love training in the gym. I just, I just love climbing. And expeditions are often less of the real climbing and more of the carrying duffel bags around and wallowing in the snow and sitting in bad weather and, you know, generally getting worked. But expeditions do open your eyes to the whole rest of the world. And, you know, some of the most beautiful places on earth, some of the most remote human cultures on earth. I mean, it's like you basically can can learn a ton about the world through expeditions, but you definitely do worse climbing. You know, so if, if you purely climb, care about rock climbing, then expeditions are not, uh, you know, not your bread and butter. <laughs> I mean, we'll get to it, but on the last one we did together, you did a day of climbing. One day. No, no, because I went and sold that route the day out. I did two days of good climbing. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, no, I definitely did. Don't worry. That's all public. Don't worry. <laughs> well, or like, you know, I don't care. Yeah, um, no, I did. No, no, no. You did two days of climbing. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, let's just, no, let's in, just go there. I mean, in a, in a two-month expedition where we bicycled from Colorado to Alaska, I spent two months with Tommy. We did this crazy expedition. We did maybe three days of climbing in the winds, let's see, four days in the bugaboos, and then 
two days in Alaska, basically. So, uh, I mean, is that it? Did I miss something? Because that's that's only like under 10 days of climbing in two months. <laughs> like, that's so bad. Yeah, I mean, it's a... Uh, it was a it was a poor ratio. So let's get into that. I mean, let's start with Tommy. So when you were first starting out or aware of Tommy, who was he? Who is he? And what was he to you back then? Oh, Tommy Caldwell is, you know, American climbing legend. I mean, international climbing legend, but certainly an American hero. Uh, I'm pretty sure he was on the cover of one of our climbing magazines draped in an American flag when I was when I was a teenager. You know, and so uh, you know, <laughs> like he's the man. And uh He's a total icon. He's put up all the hardest routes on OCAP. He's, he's, you know, actually he put up the hardest route in the U.S. at the time. Uh, you know, I mean, he's just, he's an incredible climber. Uh, you know, I guess since 2012, I've been lucky enough to call him a, a good friend and we've climbed together a lot and done a lot of big link-ups together and big, you know, adventures together. We've done the Fitzgerald's together and the No Speed Record and, you know, a bunch of other things. So, I mean, Tommy kind of started out as just a full-on, like, hero, and, you know, has kind of turned into a, a go-to friend and climbing partner. And how did this project, you know, the thing we're talking about from this summer in Alaska with National Geographic, how did that all come about? Um, well, I mean, I guess the main thing, so two years ago or two and a half years or whatever it is now, uh, Tommy ruptured his Achilles in a lead fall, um, which is totally just one of those normal things. He was just climbing, he fell, but when he hit the wall, it ruptured his Achilles. And then his recovery process just turned out being quite unfortunate. And, you know, obviously you can talk to him about it, but basically it re-ruptured a couple times during recovery. And so it kind of took him a year and a half for his Achilles to come back. And through that, he was doing a lot of cycling. And then also he spent the last 10 years raising his kids and like hasn't really done a big expedition in, in almost a decade. In fact, I mean, I forget the numbers, but he had some crazy numbers that he hadn't been away from home for more than two weeks in 10 years or something like that. So he basically hadn't been on a big climbing trip in in a decade. And so he was just chomping at the bit after a year and a half of rehab and recovery and fixing his leg. And then the fact that it had been a decade since he'd done anything truly adventurous. So he was jonesing for a big adventure of some kind. And so he kind of dreamed up this idea of biking from his house in Colorado to Alaska to climb the devil's thumb, uh, and then stopping at a couple destinations along the way to climb other walls, sort of as practice slash to break up the bike ride. But, uh, but basically he just dreamed up the biggest possible adventure. And honestly, I mean, what he envisioned was even bigger. And I sort of talked him off the ledge, so to speak, because he wanted to sea kayak the whole way up the the southeastern coast of Alaska. And I was like, that is insane. That's like a couple more weeks of paddling. You know, I was like, Tommy, we're both going to get divorced if we spend like three months just like questing through the wilds. You know, it's like, that's just way too big of a trip. How did you react when he first asked you to go with him? Well, originally, you know, I mean, he was envisioning the trip as just uh, like he just wanted to go on this rad adventure. And I was kind of like, well, I support you either way. And I wanted to do the climbing with him because it's, it's super fun to climb with Tommy in the mountains like that and to do those kinds of objectives. And so I told him that, you know, if he was going to be on a solo bike adventure that I would drop in and at least do the climbing pieces with him, like come into the bugaboos in Canada and just climb with him for a week and then and then just leave him to bike for a long ways. But obviously the adventure is kind of better if if it's, a holistic effort, you know, if, if taken as a whole, it's, it's more of a, an experience because I kind of knew that if I just dropped in and did a week of climbing with him and then disappeared again and then joined him again a month later, I'd be really missing a lot of the, the, you know, the essence of the trip because he would be going through this crazy physical transformation. You know, I, I kind of imagine that it'd be like this, uh, 
transformative experience to to quest across the wilds for so far. And I was like, oh, you know, it'd be weird if I'm just not participating in the the bulk of the adventure. So I was kind of like, well, if he's going to do it. And um, now I was like, oh, maybe I should just do the whole thing with him. But I mean, you know, we talked about this a bit when we were out there, but did you come to a decision to go with him quickly? Did you take some convincing? Well, it went back and forth. I mean, honestly, you know, I only wanted to do the full trip with him if the the Nat Geo TV show came together, which is what you worked on and what we all worked on together. Mostly because I felt like I couldn't really justify taking a two-month trip away from my wife and family if it was just for my own pleasure to hang out with my buddy and have a good time climbing. But if it's work, you know, if it's a TV show and it, you know, will someday help put my daughter through college, then I'm kind of like, it's a lot easier to justify. And I mean, and my wife certainly, uh, you know, it matters to her that I'm doing cool trips that I care about with people I care about. So as far as work goes, I think she'd rather I'm doing some, you know, incredible expedition than, than doing say corporate speaking in some, some convention center in like Omaha or wherever, you know, it's like, she's kind of like, well, there's a lot more joy and because, you know, we're obviously good friends with the whole Caldwell family. So, I mean, uh, for my wife, it's like better for me to be with our family friends than, than off just like working, working. I don't know. So, I mean, it was kind of a, a joint decision, but it, it, yeah, I mean, it took a while for the, for the show to come together, for the logistics to come together, for it to actually make sense. I mean, also, I mean, Tommy had this whole, Tommy had this vision of like, I want to do this thing, but it wasn't until we sat down together and I started actually doing some of the logistics that we saw the amount of time it would take because, you know, I think he had just thought about it like, oh, it's 2000 miles of biking, you know, hundred miles a day, that's 20 days of biking, you know, and that leaves you weeks and weeks of rock climbing. But then when you start to actually map out the segments and, and actually get into it of like, well, this town is a little ways off the normal highway and it's like 4,000 feet of gain to get to the town. And you're kind of like, well, realistically, you just can't do hundred miles and get to that town that same day. And so when you start mapping it out, you're suddenly like, you know, it's just not that simple. <laughs> and and then you're sort of like, okay, it's actually like a six-week journey, not like a three-week journey. Yeah, and it goes without saying that you guys are, you know, pretty elite athletes in your own way within your disciplines. But how much cycling experience had you got? Long-distance cycling experience. Well, so both of us actually have a bit of a cycling base, like a, a little bit, just because we've cycled a fair amount in our lives. Like I've done two other bike tours that were both roughly a month long with uh, with Cedar Wright, the Sufferfest one and Sufferfest two. But so both of those were like a month of biking, and then. Um, and then also I just didn't own a car for a while. So as a, as a teenager, I biked a ton, like literally thousands of miles, uh, bike commuting. So I do feel like I have a bit of a base for cycling, like more so than other activities. Um, and Tommy also, I think has, has cycled a fair amount as like cross training in his life. And then, but more recently, Tommy had been doing a ton of cycling as his, uh, rehab for the Achilles injury. So he was actually in quite good cycling shape. Whereas I, I took a sort of unfortunate approach of intentionally not doing any cycling training until I was sure that the trip was going to happen and that it all come together. But then, uh, but by that point it was too late and I basically did one long bike ride and then just hopped on the bike and I got completely destroyed. It was a, it was, a, it was an unfortunate strategy. Well, how did it go? Yeah, we're going to condense uh, them, but. Well, how did the, the ride go? Yeah. Well, I mean, we made it to Alaska and we did the things we were trying to do. So, so technically it went well, um, but I actually kind of just dug myself into a hole and like physically I didn't really thrive and I kind of sucked. And it's taken me a while since I got home to like feel good again. You know, it's, uh, 
which I don't think Tommy experienced that because I don't think he was like getting quite as crushed on the bicycle. And so I think for him, it was a little more, you know, obviously we were both tired, but I think he was recovering better and, and sort of enjoying it more. And I was just like slowly getting ground down to dust and I was just like not, not thriving. I mean, what were you doing during the day? I know obviously cycling, but you like listening to audiobooks or just stuck in your brain? I listened to a couple audiobooks. I listened to a lot of music. You know, sometimes you just ride and you just look at the scenery. You, um, I don't know. I got into the Sam Harris uh, waking up app, the like meditation app. I would like do two meditations while cycling. It was just kind of like an interesting, just, I mean, anything, you know, you're biking like eight hours a day. So you have plenty of time to, to think and to whatever. When you look back on it, kind of reflecting on it, do you look on it as a positive experience in any way? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not like, um, yeah, no, it's definitely a positive experience in a lot of ways. And I learned a lot. And um, I mean, if nothing else, you know, we will have wound up making this TV show together. And just that, I mean, you know, as far as like television content goes, I mean, who knows, we haven't seen the drafts yet, and it could be terrible. But it's probably not that bad. And it's a good way to highlight the the landscape in southeastern Alaska to highlight the adventure. You know, I'm kind of like, I'd rather be creating TV content like this than like the Kardashians or something. You know what I mean? Like this isn't this isn't the worst way to spend a life. Kind <laughs> of like, yeah, I mean, like bicycling a lot was a grind. But as far as it goes, like if this is what I do for work, I mean it's a pretty freaking great job. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, we're not going to cover everything in detail here. But um and I talked to Tommy about it in the podcast I recorded with him last week. But you know, we hopped on the sailboat and headed over to Alaska. How did you find the sailing? I thought the sailing was kind of silly. Um, or just, well, as it turns out, we just weren't really sailing because it turns out that the it's hard to nail the winds, it's hard to nail the tides, it's hard to get all the conditions just right. And so we were basically just motor yachting or whatever, you know, like running this diesel engine and just chug, chug, chugging along at very low speeds. And th this was kind of one of the things that I feel like I learned from the whole trip is just that a lot of the things... I mean, this is all goes back to our environmental ranting sort of thing. But a lot of the things that seem on the surface environmentally friendly are kind of eco. You know, when you get into it, you're kind of like, is that is that the way? You know, I'm kind of like, okay, we avoided planes in this journey. But in southeastern Alaska, we could have taken a 45-minute float plane journey or spend a week in a boat just chugging along, uh, mostly with the diesel engine because it turns out the wind's never right. You're kind of like, I think it's... I mean, I don't know, like, I don't even quite know how to do the math, but I'm almost certain that the float plane would come in at, at fewer fossil fuel emissions than, than taking the boat. Even though, you know, intuitively, you're just kind of like, oh, we sailed there. So obviously, that's way better. And you're kind of like, I don't, I don't think it is actually <laughs> in this, in this particular case. Yeah, like you say, you haven't done the maths on it. But like, it's, it certainly feels possible that that might be the case. Yeah, it's like running jet A fuel for 45 minutes versus running like some big old diesel thing for like a week. You're kind of like, I, th I think in this case, 45 minutes is just, it's just fundamentally faster. You know, it's just, it's just you're running an engine for way less time. Yeah. And, you know, this movie is going to come out next year and people can watch that. And I think we're not going to go into the story in detail today, maybe. But what was the point of this trip? Maybe sort of from Tommy's perspective with the original ambition, not just to bike and climb, right? It was to prove a point. Well, was it, you mean like the human powered adventure point? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, was was that the point? I mean, he certainly says so. I'm interested in your take on the purpose and the point of it. Like in the world 
and you know we're mixing this with the eco rant now and let's see where we go where we go and we're obviously freestyling but yeah yeah totally <laughs> which i like but there's you know it's perfectly fine for you guys to go on expeditions and do the things that you do under the banner of whatever you do them for but i think what tommy wanted to achieve with this project was showing that you can do an amazing epic scaled adventure mostly under human power now Obviously, you guys are pro climbers. You're being paid to be there. You can easily take the time off work and in inverted commas. There's all of those things to consider too. But it was possible, you know. The, yeah, there was a bit. Yeah, of though, though, do you need a do you need a trip like this to prove that it's possible? Because obviously, anybody knows that it's possible. I mean, my sister's never owned a car, and she only bike tours for pleasure. So, like every time she gets time off, she goes on a little bike tour. She takes the train somewhere with her bike, and then she does a little like week camping and and backpacking. It's like it's not like we don't know that that's an opportunity you know it's like everybody knows that you can go on human powered adventures like i don't think that a journey like this proves that as a i don't know so so this is a bit of a digression but interestingly uh so like last month or two months ago or something uh I, tommy and i actually together climbed this route on El Cap, and while we were up there there were these two germans climbing the same route and one of them is like on a year-long van journey in the u.s and so uh, after we camped next to them on El Cap for a couple of days and chatted with them, I was like, oh, you should come uh, park at my house uh, while you're in uh, climbing in Vegas because it's like a, a nice base for you for a little while. And so he's been like living out his living out of the yard in his minivan for a while. And I was chatting with him and he's like, oh, I had this girlfriend in Germany, um, but we broke up before I came on this journey. And I was like, oh, why didn't she just come to the States with you and like climb for a bit? And he was like, oh, she doesn't fly full stop. Like, you know, she'll only travel by like ground transit around Europe and stuff. And he was like, oh, that's quite common actually for for sort of like university girls nowadays, like to, to just not fly full stop. And I was like, that's interesting because like in the US, that is just not a thing at all. And I think, I mean, part of that's because the US probably lags in terms of general environmental awareness and all that. But part of it is because if you don't fly in the US, you'll never see your family again. You know, like there is no public transit. There are no trains. Like it's a huge country. And when you do the the carbon accounting for it, if you're driving a single occupancy vehicle for 3,000 miles across the country to go see your grandparents for the holidays, like that's, I'm pretty sure that's worse than than flying economy, uh, you know, on a single flight. So you're kind of like, in the US anyway, a lot of the the environmental measures just don't totally make sense in the same way or some of the like hard eco stances that that make sense in some parts of the world. In the States... And that's basically because the system is is not built for it. You know, it's like we don't have all the infrastructure you need to actually live a totally eco lifestyle here. So all that to say, I mean, this this bike journey, you're like, yeah, it's a proof of concept that you can do a human-powered adventure and, and all that. But it's like when you start diving into it in the States, you basically realize that the whole system is sort of rigged against you in terms of of, of leading an environmentally friendly lifestyle. Know, which which really, you know, you should change the system, you should fix all those kinds of things. It's like I, you know, I'm I'm totally on board with that. It's just I don't know. I mean, like in Europe, it's a popular like greenpoint routes and all that. You know, it's like everyone takes their e-bike to the crag. And like in the States, it's like 70 miles to the crag. You know, like you're not taking your e-bike. <laughs> like it's just the distances are too big. There's no public transit. It's like it's this vast landscape. But as a Brit, that just like sums america up for me and i'm happy for you to like disagree with my bias or whatever i think you you know that already you'll you'll argue with me if you want to but like there is not that culture yeah people will fly out to chamonix every now and again to go climbing but 
people don't go, oh, I'm going to go to Yosemite now, and then I'm going to go to Utah, and then I'm going to go up to Alaska. Like, that's not how people live their lives. Wait, what do you mean? Well, in the US? It feels like, yeah. Because for climbers, that, that literally is how people lead their life. It's like yeah. seasonal, you know, going from, you know, Indian Creek to Yosemite to whatever. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a very American thing. Oh, oh think, you're saying that is how, it, so you're yeah. saying in Europe, people don't do that. Not really. I mean, the pros do, obviously, because they're pros, but that's not normal. You know, most people are like, I live in Sheffield or the Peak District, and sometimes I go to North Wales to go try climbing for the weekend. Yeah, part of that, I think, is is because there's less of like a dirtbag van life culture in, in Europe because it's, well, and so part of that, again, is because the U.S. is so vast and so open. There's so much public land. There's so many free places to basically live that in Europe, everything is private. Everything is is semi-urban. You can't just like live in your van and like casually park wherever you want and just like do your thing. You know, it's, I mean, the U.S. does have a huge degree of personal freedom that allows that kind of vagabond lifestyle by choice. You know, it's, yeah. it's like hard to do that in the rest of the world because things are more controlled and, and more owned. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, we don't have a right to roam. Like we can't go anywhere in England. It's, yeah, it's a joke. Um, yeah, I mean, in the States, so where I live in, in Nevada uh, is 85% public land. So 85% of what you see around you is just owned by the taxpaying public and you can just go park. I mean, you know, there are still rules about what you can do on public lands, but they're very loose and very loosely enforced. And, you know, so you can basically camp like anywhere you want. Yeah, where there's nowhere, there's one small exception, but there's nowhere legal in England to wild camp. It's completely illegal. Yeah, I mean, well, so that's why nobody lives in their camper in, in England. You know, yeah. whereas in the States, it's like, why wouldn't you? It's like the best way to, to climb. I mean, you know, I lived in my van for over 10 years and you just like roam the Western US climbing year round. Yeah, it sounds dreadful. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we get into all this stuff in more detail, because it's clear where this is going, I think, can you just start this off a bit by talking about the Honnold Foundation and where it came from and at what stage in your life? What's the point of it? Yeah, so the Honnold Foundation supports community solar projects around the world. Basically, we give grants to, to community organizations. So we give money to people um, all over the world to support their solar projects. And it started, I guess, in 2012 or so. Um, and I mean, and yeah, it started from a general personal desire to do something useful in the world. Like I wanted to do something that was good for the environment. And I felt like it wasn't worth doing anything for the environment if it didn't help human communities, like it didn't help people in need. Just because you go on enough expeditions where you realize that nobody cares about the environment unless their basic needs are met. And so if you're going to try to protect the environment, you kind of have to do both at the same time. And solar is so often an elegant win-win solution for both the environment and for, for, human, for, for human needs. Um, and so originally I started the Honda Foundation just looking for any kind of environmental projects that, that supported human livelihoods, you know, that helped people. Um, but then after many years, we were basically only funding solar projects because they're so often the best solution. And so now we're explicitly a solar grant-giving organization. And so the last couple of years, we've been giving uh, over $2 million to, you know, community organizations around the world. Yeah, and I mean, it's obviously grown like to an amazing scale that I'm, I don't know, you can tell me, but I'm fairly sure you've maybe never dreamed it would get to. But when it started, and I think this is like a major thing for me when I think about it, is you were still living in a van and you weren't earning loads and loads of money in the grand scheme of things. You just wanted to do this because it felt like the right thing to do. 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, so I was living in my van and I was earning more than I needed because I was living in a van and I didn't really need a whole lot. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I just felt like I should be doing something. And part of it was, um, I mean, so so that year, I basically decided I wanted to do several things. Like I was going going vegetarian. I was trying to minimize my my environmental impact in a couple different ways. And I decided I was going to offset all my travel and like go vegetarian and then like start this foundation, give give money to environmental nonprofits. But then when I, at the time in 2012, when I sort of researched offsets, I realized that if you're offsetting your travel, well, basically if you're buying offsets, you're really giving somebody money to do something in the world. And I decided that it was better to just give that money directly to the projects that I think are most useful because... Uh, you know, offsets range from, say, planting trees to, say, like capping a landfill to to capture the methane emissions. And I'm kind of like, you know, some projects are super inspiring. Others are way less, though, because some some I'm like, should we be donating charitable money to something like this that should just be handled through through regulatory oversight? Like this should be, you know, like some municipality should be enforcing some rule where a landfill has to be capped. Like it shouldn't be taking my donations to do that. You know, like that's crazy. And so I felt like if I was going to be offsetting travel, I should just do it directly to the organizations that I thought were doing the best work. And then that basically, in, in some ways, turned into the Hanel Foundation. So it's kind of like, oh, if you're going to be giving money directly to the organizations you think are best, just do it in a structured and sort of public way through, through a nonprofit and allow others to help you do that. And, and you know, after a few years, you have the Hanel Foundation. Yeah. I, so so, so going, going back to offsetting your personal travel, so... At that that year when I did that, so I'd already put solar on my mom's house as like a random, you know, I was like, oh, this old lady living by herself, like it's just an easy way to like clean the grid. And then I'd done that for some some families uh, or some uh, some of my family, like you know, some cousins and aunt and uncle, and just like putting solar on their house. And at the time, I'd done the math that the lifetime emissions saved from a home PV system, like a home solar system, on just a normal suburban house, like normal amounts of energy. Uh, were roughly the same emissions as one year of my travel with like international expeditions and flights and whatever. And so putting like a home PV system at the time, you know, it was like 20K or something in my mom's house. I was kind of like, oh, well, 20K a year in in solar systems is like basically covering all my international flights and stuff in terms of emissions. And it's good for the family who's getting it. It's good for, uh, you know, and w- when I was just starting, this isn't through the Hanel Foundation. This is, I was just doing this personally, like on, you know, because I thought it was like the right thing to do. Um, and then ultimately the Hanel Foundation is, is a much more grown up extension of that, that idea. And we're kind of like, oh, well, you're helping the right people, the people with the most need receive the biggest benefit from environmentally friendly projects. Yeah. Cause I, I think the offsetting thing is like a massive conversation and it's something Hazel Finley and I have talked about a lot. Cause I'm like, I get that what you're saying is, you know, this is well researched, it's well thought through. These solar projects are obviously well researched. But I think this whole like plant some trees, you know, click on the flight link to plant some trees and you spend, you know, $15 to offset it. It's like, well, how are those trees cared for? Is that land deforested 10 years later? Is this actually useful? And there's so much of this offsetting stuff that is total greenwashing. You know, what are your views on the, the offsetting world and that ridding ourselves of the guilt for flying around all the time? I think, um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I agree that there's a lot of, yeah, greenwashing and, and, and sort of, I don't know. So I actually had to moderate a panel discussion between some people that uh, founded this organization, uh, Climate Zero, 
uh, which they're they're aiming to be sort of the yeah climate zero. Um, I was just moderating a, a panel between like the founders and some other folks at like an outdoor industry trade show, but um, but they're aiming to be the first uh, sort of like fair trade certification. Um, you know, or like rainforest, whatever certification that you see, like on food products and, and consumer goods, they're basically aiming to be a, a, you know, a climate neutral certification for, uh, for consumer goods. So like when you buy a product, you're like, Oh, you know, like this is, this is carbon neutral. And, and at the time I was kind of like, and so they do that, you know, by helping organizations, you know, basically reduce, reuse, recycle kind of thing, you know, like, like lower their emissions as much as possible. And then when you get to a certain point, you can't reduce further than than offsetting in different ways. And so the the crux is ensuring that you're getting quality offsets. And, um, and, and through moderating that I did learn a bit more about offsets. And, and overall, I am actually a little more into them, I think, than I think I was more skeptical, initially, because I was like, this all seems like a scam. But I think that, I mean, they would argue, you know, I mean, people in the offset market would kind of argue that to some extent, you just buy up all the trashy projects. Like, like basically, the price of carbon is is not accurately reflected, uh, and and that's through all kinds of like fossil fuel subsidies and, and whatever else. But so when you're offsetting, it's just artificially cheap in a way that's that's like not appropriate. But they would argue that eventually you get through all the the sort of trashy bad things, and you're left with with higher quality projects that that do have a real impact in the world. I mean, a lot of the things that that we're funding through the Hano Foundation, uh, we we have nothing to do with carbon offsets, and we don't like sell offsets for the work we're doing. But some of the projects that we're funding are the type that could be carbon offsets. Like if you're using uh, solar to power cook stoves instead of biogas or something, you know, or instead of a uh, biofuel. You know, or some instead of cutting down firewood, they're like using a, a solar cooker. You're kind of like that is good for the environment, and that is the kind of thing that would qualify for offsets if it's accounted for in the right way. You're kind of like those are the projects that you want to see happen, and they are good for the planet, and they're really good for human health in terms of not burning, uh, you know, not having a freaking fire in a confined space, which is like terrible for your health. So all, all that to say. I'm not uniformly negative on on offsets. Like I think they have a place. I think they make sense. But I totally hear what you're saying. Yeah, and I, I you know I'm slightly less skeptical and cynical than I was five minutes ago. But I I think maybe I'm <laughs> on that because I I am a little bit. I think like I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I think what's really interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think it's those things that you just don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. Because there are tons of meaningful projects that are doing good work in the right places with the right people. And so just because some things might be greenwashing or some things might even be fraudulent, it doesn't mean that the whole concept doesn't work. And and I think that that there's always going to be a place for the concept because, you know, even if human society gets to to sort of carbon neutrality by 2050 or like any of the goals from the IPCC and things like that. There are some industries that are just not not going uh, carbon free, like within our lifetimes, probably. Like, you know, aviation, and, and certainly, like, uh, if not aviation, the freaking rockets, like full on space travel, will not go carbon neutral, like in my lifetime. I bet. No, and then that I, just, I could be wrong, but, but probably not. You know, we're both amateurs on the subject. With you, a lot more qualified than me. But like, the question would be, does it all need to? You know, are we trying to like? Well, that, that's that's exactly the point. Is that there are tons of worthwhile offsetting projects that would make the world a better place, 
And you're kind of like, you don't need to reduce all emissions from, from human life. You just have to reduce most of them and then make sure there are plenty of other positive things going on that, that take up a lot of the rest of that carbon. Yeah. I mean, to bring this back to you for a second, I think, you know, I sort of deliberately didn't know where this conversation would go, but I expected it might go here. Um, cause you and I both, that's interested. the, uh, this is the, the Joe Rogan approach to podcasting where you're like, I, he intentionally does no prep, has no idea what's going on. And then he just rambles for hours in the name of, uh, you know, it's all part of a strategy. <laughs> I feel, I feel like you're, you're taking on the Joe Rogan yeah. approach. We're going to move on to my views on MMA soon. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about hunting. I, I think every time I talk to him, we talk about hunting at some point and I'm like, you know, you know, I'm mostly a vegetarian. No, Totally. <laughs> Totally. Every time I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. He's like, you should hunt more. I'm like, okay, well, I'll, I'll go hunt for a vegetable. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interested. Well, I just on that, I think like every time I've spoken to you on camera or on a mic, I'm on someone else's agenda, right? Like I've got a box to tick in terms of the content, whereas I don't right now. So I just think what's interesting is your transition from clearly like passionate, borderline, maybe obsessive rock climber when you were younger to, I don't know, pick your word, environmentalist, activist, intellectual. I don't know. It's, it's maybe all three. When did that happen and why? Well, I think it's less of a transition than you might think, because I think in some ways, you know, in 2012, when I started the foundation, I was maybe even more outspoken about these kinds of things and sort of more militant in my views around, you know, like diet and like lifestyle things and, and whatever else. I mean, in some ways I've sort of moderated my stance on, on a lot of environmental issues just as I've gotten older and, you know, now I'm raising a kid and, and you just get into some, you're just like, you know, some things are just a little easier if you just go with the flow. You know, it's like, like I'm already starting to ease into middle age where you're like, do I have to rage against the system at all times? You know, it's like, like I'm, I'm probably less anti-authority and everything now than I was, you know, 10 years ago. So, so I don't know if it's really like a transition to being an environmental activist. I would just say that, though, I mean, it is to some extent, just in so much as the Honol Foundation has such a bigger impact now than, than does when we started. You know, when I, when I started HF, I was giving 50K a year in grants, which at the time represented a third of my income. And I was kind of like, oh, this is, seems like a substantial, you know, like good first step in, in giving some grants you know, now the last two years, we've given over 2 million. So it's like, you know, 20 times the impact in terms of, of projects around the world, which, which is amazing. I'm totally into that. And that, you know, I mean, I guess in some ways that makes me an activist, but it, you know, I was probably reading more environmental nonfiction back then than I am now, just because now I'm like, Oh my God, my daughter's screaming again. I better go feed her some more oatmeal or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's like, that just happened this morning. <laughs> I know that game very well. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. So, but do you consider yourself, you know, a conservationist, an activist? I mean, I don't really, but I mean, I know that, that I probably am by the definition of the terms, but I would just consider myself an, an engaged human citizen. You know, like I would consider myself a, a normal member of society who's read a lot of books and cares about the world around me. Like I've, I've always been a little bit turned off by, by the term activist, just mostly because it turns so many people off. You know, like, it's, and this is, might be a little more unique to the U.S., but, you know, in the U.S., if you say that someone's an environmental activist, it basically means that half of the people in the country hate you, even though those half of the people are doing basically the same things that you are. They're going out in nature, you know, they're going, they're going four-wheeling, they're going hunting, they're going fishing, they're doing whatever. I mean, they're basically outdoors people as well, but if they hear that you're an activist, then they're like, oh, that person sucks. 
you're kind of like, well, okay, well, let's not use the word activist. Let's just say that I care about the environment. I care about public spaces. Like I, I love the wilderness. You know, it's like, why not just use it in terms that appeal to everybody? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's, again, that's, that's a uniquely American thing because it's like so polarized here and such, like the terms are so loaded. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I completely understand that. I mean, but it's interesting listening to you and Tommy talk about it. You know, this is something we've discussed before, but Tommy's like adamantly and vehemently um, an activist in the sense of like he uses his platform for good and raising awareness, which I know is your favorite phrase. You know, yeah, lobbying. Yeah. But, but, and he's put you under a lot of pressure or he has historically to, to do more of that given your online following and kind of, you know, I, I'm sure you're anti-word celebrity, but you are like a, in your own way a celebrity. Do you not feel like you have a responsibility to use that to educate more people and make, you know, raise awareness? I mean, I think, I mean, I think if you looked at both my and Tommy's entire sort of public history, I've probably done more posting about these kinds of things and, and more ranting about the environment than than he has. I just think that for him, it's ramped up almost exponentially over the last several years and partially due to his, uh, you know, he's sponsored by Patagonia, which is a total advocacy uh, company. Like I don't, I don't even call it. I mean, you know, the company Patagonia is in business to save planet Earth, I'm pretty sure is their, is their motto. So, I mean, if that's not activist, like, I don't know, I don't know what it is. You know, it's like his whole job and his whole sponsorship as a climber stems around environmental activism, which is amazing. But so as he's become more engaged in that, he's done, you know, he's become a more and more publicly outspoken activist, which is great. I think that I've kind of taken more of the, the consistent slow roll where like over the years, like actually during COVID, I went on this whole, you know, everybody's like inside and posting a lot and I was all engaged in social media. And uh, I went on this in, environmental post of the week thing where I was just, I, actually, I was taking mostly rad photos from Free Solo. Like I was taking like Jimmy Chin photos from, from Free Solo and then just accompanying each one with like epically long environmental rants about like, you know, w whatever it was that I was fired up about. And they were the pretty well researched and, and uh, you know, kind of smart. And they basically led to, you know, massive, I mean, as you expect, you know, very, very divisive commentary both ways on, on the internet, which, which I enjoyed, you know, I would just wade into and like argue with people and have a good time and, you know, sort of try to learn and, and educate and whatever. So I don't know. I mean, I think I've done a lot of that myself. I just take a slightly different, different approach to it. Or I'm just like, actually, well, part of it is that I just hate social media. And so I just hate, and, and that's kind of the way in which people engage on this stuff for the most part now. And I just, I just don't want to, I'm kind of waiting for most of the big platforms to die. And I feel like they will at some point, they just haven't yet. Well, though, the Twitter is well on its way. It's like, it's like halfway there. It's got a foot in the grave, but I don't yeah, know. No, it's hard to argue with that, right? Like, I think this is, you know, my line on it. And I've sat and listened to you guys talk about it is, you don't have to do it. That's why I asked the loaded question of like, do you feel a responsibility to do it? And I, I hate that phrase. You know, that's my raising awareness version. It's like, you don't really have a responsibility to do anything because of who you accidentally became. Like you didn't ask for those followers. You didn't ask. Yeah, I actually, I slightly disagree though. I do, I, I, I abide by the, the Spider-Man motto, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. You know, it's like, I think that, 
you know, whether you asked for the platform or not, and in our case, we both did ask for the platform, realistically. We both chose to be professional climbers. Like, I chose to allow a documentary film crew to follow me around doing something that I knew would be one of the raddest things ever done in climbing if I could do it. You know, it's like, I mean, I didn't expect Free Solo to go to the Oscars and all that, but I knew that it would be an amazing film if I could actually do the climb and if they did a good job filming it and all that. Um, so, I mean, it's certainly all by choice that we became public figures. You know, I mean, at the most basic level, both of us love rock climbing. And we're kind of like, if someone's willing to pay us to go climb full time, then we'll do whatever it takes to to make this lifestyle work. Because like, because I want to climb full time, like I love climbing. And so, you know, we've chosen that life. And I think by choosing it, you're also choosing the responsibility that comes with it. Which to some extent, it's like, if I'm going to spend my whole life on public lands in the US, then I'm at least a little bit beholden to protect those public lands. You know, it's like if you think about wilderness broadly like that, I'm like, I spend my whole life recreating in public, you know, like in wild places. I should be protecting the environment in some way because I get so much from it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, but I suppose, you know, you disagree and I kind of, I get what you're saying, but I also think there's a line and like given that you have the Honol Foundation and it, and it works to the extent that it does and the scale that it does, I don't think you're obligated to do anything else. You know, if the carbon tax man comes and knocks on your door in his black suit and says, we'd like to audit you, like, you get an A star. I don't think you then have to do X, Y, Z as well. And I just think, like, this whole we have a responsibility to do this stuff, it puts pressure on people and it it creates all sorts of anxieties and, you know, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and, And part of, I mean, I'm sure you've read about this kind of stuff, but that whole, like, the foisting personal responsibility onto people, I think, is largely an industry tactic to take it away from, from, to take action away from public policy, which is where it could really have a big impact. And instead, be like, you should recycle. And you're kind of like, well, the city I live in doesn't even have a recycling program. So I don't really know what I'm going to do if the recycler, you know, you're like, what? Like, what do you mean I should recycle? You're kind of like, maybe you should be producing goods with recyclable materials and less waste in the shipping and less waste in the packaging, less waste in the manufacturing. You're kind of like, this is all, those are all kind of public policy issues where you're like, maybe there should be rules around how you're allowed to manufacture things so there's less waste involved. And then you shouldn't be telling me to recycle the packaging that comes. It's like totally insane. You know, yeah, I kind of agree that that a lot of that, like, the placing the the onus on the on the person is is not really the way it should be like societal it should be industry-wide i mean it should be government regulation for yeah. for a lot of things i think that's true of a lot of it actually that's where i've gone to after a lot of years of thinking about it reading about it and i'm not an expert but that's my opinion is policy change the rules you know yeah i, I totally agree with that but then it's always hard to come back from the individual side of it though it's like you know Changing the rules is ideal, but when you change your personal actions, that is kind of the first step towards changing rules. And and like, you know, say with uh, with eating less meat, 
and and I'm by no means I'm I'm not vegan. We're pretty flexible, you know. But I would say that I eat very little meat, and so I'm kind of like, well, that's better than eating a lot of meat, you know? Because like, if just at a personal level, you're like, well, at least that's like one fewer pig that I didn't kill or whatever. Like, and a lot of the businesses are like some of the worst corporations on earth. And you're like, do you want to spend your money supporting like some of the worst corporations, you know, like Cargill or something? I don't know, like giant, like agribusiness, like freaking like Tyson meats and stuff. Like, you're just like, it's kind of gross. Like, do you want to support that? Like, is that the world that you're trying to build? Yeah, certainly. And I, I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier. You know, you spend most of your time outdoors in wild spaces. And as a result, you want to protect them or give back to them. I feel like lots of people who use the outdoors for recreation think they're having zero or a minimal impact on it. Do you think that's the case? Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you mean. I mean, I will say that there's a bit of a... Well, I don't know. What do you mean? I mean, I feel like... I mean, if I make the point more bluntly... I get this sense that sometimes lots of outdoor users are a bit kind of like holier than thou. It's like we're just out here enjoying our wild places, not doing a lot to damage the planet. We're living very kind of wholesome wild lives. But actually, you know, is there an issue with, maybe it's less of an issue in the States, but like so many people traveling to these places and trampling all over them and leaving their trash around and driving their cars to get there. And, you know, do you see that as being an issue or not? Yeah, yeah. People in the U.S. sort of complain about like our parks being loved to death and things like that. In general, I think it's better for people to go outdoors. Um, like, I mean, Yosemite Valley is a great example because Yosemite Valley, the the actual valley itself, just gets hammered by tourists. You know, like millions of tourists. It's one of the most heavily used national parks in the in the U.S. and it's it's literally millions of people a year piling through this tight little valley. And so it's like bumper to bumper traffic. It's crazy, and people see that as like, oh, it's like ruining the park. But I actually, I'm, I'm totally into it. And I'm kind of like, you know, pack as many people as you can in there. Because one, because the use in the valley floor itself allows the whole rest of the national park to exist. And the valley floor is, you know, a mile or two across and what, 10 miles long or something. But the park itself is hundreds of square miles. It's like this giant park that protects giant mountain ranges and alpine meadows. And, you know, it's, it protects this incredible ecosystem, the High Sierra at the expense of this one little area that has a couple hotels and some some restaurants. You know, and people are like, oh, you know, Yosemite, it's like a desecration. There are all these people. And you're kind of like, if you don't want to see the people, walk just four miles into the wilderness. Like a couple of years ago, um, one of my arms was hurting one of the seasons in Yosemite. And I was kind of like, ah, and instead of trying to do this all cap thing, I went for this really, really long day hike. <laughs> I did this 50-mile loop uh, over like Red Pass. It's really scenic. It's really beautiful. Uh, like when you're on some of the, like if you're on the summit of El Cap or Half Dome, you can see these mountains in the distance. And I like went and walked around those and came back. And in this 50-mile loop, I passed like, I don't know, maybe four people total the whole day. And I was like, I walked 50 miles through the park and I saw maybe four people. And you know, for all the people complaining about crowding, you're kind of like, well, you can get off the paved road if you want to. That's the whole point of a national park. It's protected and it's all there available. There are trails, it's maintained. It's like, you can do whatever you want if you want to have that experience. But the main point though, to me is that the millions of people crammed into that valley, you know, whether it's like a desecration of nature or not, they're all having what to them is an incredible nature experience. They're seeing the waterfalls, they're seeing the cliffs, they're being awed by nature. And I don't think anyone cares about the environment unless they have meaningful experiences in nature. And, you know, 
as you know, for somebody like me, like a hardcore outdoors person, I'm kind of like, oh, driving your RV by and looking at, not, at a waterfall seems pretty light duty. Like that's not that's not rad. But the thing is, for the person in the RV, if that's like the biggest exposure to nature they've ever had, then that's good enough. You know, like that is great. And power to them. And I mean, that can be the beginning of their own environmental journey. It's like if that's what it takes for them to care about nature. So, so my point is just that in the U.S. especially, nobody votes for the environment unless they care in some way. And the easiest way for people to care is to go outside and have cool experiences or, you know, to, to be impacted in some way. And so if that means that some parks are overrun, I'm like, good. You know, like it's better to get more people outside than, than fewer. Yeah, I, I, I mean, for what it's worth, I completely agree, particularly now. I think that's the thing is nature in some senses is incredibly fragile, but in other senses is incredibly resilient. I mean, as I think you know, I, I went to Chernobyl years ago and I saw the trees, <laughs> the saplings growing through the tarmac. And I was like, it was this incredible, supposed to be this super somber place. And obviously it is in lots of ways, but I was kind of like, I think it's all going to be okay. Like, yeah, like a hundred years from now, if nothing happens, it'll just be a forest again. There'll be like animals. Yeah. It's like nature will take it back. It will. And I think you're completely right. Like, Let's get people out there seeing it all, falling in love with it, and then wanting to protect it. Because then, hey, we're securing a better future. Um, yeah, I, th I think people always complain about the visual impact, like, oh, there's too much litter. And actually, so litter is one thing that, you know, obviously I don't litter, and I pick up trash when I see it outside. But I really don't get that worked up about litter, because in the grand scheme of human impact, you're like, who cares? You know, and actually, it's funny, because a lot of these parks in the US, um, if something is more than 50 years old, it's considered uh, like an, like a relic, you know, or like an artifact, I think under, under antiquities stuff in the U S. Uh, so a lot of climbing areas, you see like old mining equipment, like rusted old cans and things like that. But nowadays 50 years doesn't even get you into the golden age of climbing. So it's like some of the stuff is like Warren Harding's tinned fish or whatever, you know, it's like you can be up on walls and you can find like rusted old tins and things. And you're like, technically, this is an artifact. It's like being preserved from like an earlier age. You know, this is like ancient, exciting, but you're like, this is basically just somebody else's trash from, from a, you know, like a couple of generations back of climbing. But ultimately, I'm like, that is not the thing that's having the biggest impact on the world. You know, it's like, when you think of like for me to go to a park, somebody's like cut a road, they've paved the road, they've maintained the road, they've oiled it, I'm using some kind of vehicle. And, and even if I'm driving an electric vehicle, like that still has an impact in the manufacturing. It's like every aspect of you going to a park has a, a, a substantial impact on the world. You know, if you see a piece of litter there, you're kind of like, is that the big impact of the day? You're like, come on. It's like, obviously, uh, you shouldn't be littering and somebody should have picked it up. But like, that's not the thing that's going to have the biggest effect on the world. Yeah, totally. I think as well, sort of related to this whole, you know, driving out all these miles and using all this carbon. As I understand it, you know, yeah, you travel a lot and partly because that's through necessity through work, which you could stop, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But actually you do a lot from your front door and you've deliberately created a life where you can. I think maybe yeah. talk a little bit about what you do now. What is life like on a daily basis for you? Well, especially right now in particular, because we're waiting for baby number two in February. So, uh, so I'm just like fully at home. Yes. <laughs> Exciting. Um, I'm like, is that the public unveiling of baby number two? I don't think I've actually posted anything about it yet, but it's not a secret. Sonny's posted and it's whatever. But, um, but so we went to Yosemite in the van for a couple of weeks in October. And now basically from November until April, I'll just be at home in Vegas and just, just living, you know, climbing outside a couple of days a week, training in the home gym a couple of days a week. And, and that's it. You know, it's like living. 
which is kind of awesome. You know, I mean, and, and this is why we've chosen to live here is because the outdoor climbing is perfect year round. But yeah, it's, it's funny every once in a while, my, my wife and I are like, oh, we're so lucky to have this situation. And then we're like, yeah, we are really fortunate. But we also created this whole situation. We chose a place to live. We like we we renovated the houses. We we like have a property where we can have van dwellers and have friends and community around. It's like, uh, you know, like it is very fortunate. But it also has been tons of very strategic choices. Yeah, that's something that you know we talked about in Alaska, which sort of shocked me in a really good way. Was you tend to have like numerous dirt bags or homeless people living outside your house year round. Yeah, we've had we've had one guy living in his trailer behind our garage for two years. <laughs> I mean, does Sally not mind that? Is she into it? And like, why why is that a thing? Well, so part of that is a thing because I mean that that's more common in the U.S. because more people are living out of cars and there's more dirtbag culture and more people coming and going. We also happen to live, uh, you know, in Vegas, which is a premier climbing destination in the Western U.S. for many months of the year. So it's like you know, it'd be like living in Chamonix or something where it's like, obviously people are coming through all the time because they want to climb in one of the premier destinations on earth. So, and then part of it is just because I lived in a car for, well, I lived in a van exclusively for like 10 years and then kind of on and off for like 15 really. And I've just used so many friends' houses and been based out of different places and like used friends' washing machines and, uh, you know, like using friends' bathrooms and whatever. And so part of it is just repaying the karmic debt, you know, or like, I basically have used my friends' houses for a decade or more. And so it's nice to be able to pay that back a little bit, you know, like help some of my friends out, like, you know, allow people to, to roam. I don't know. It just seems... And also, like, it's, it's not like we're going way out of our way. I mean, the, we, we happen to be lucky enough that we have a bathroom outside. And so people don't have to come into the house that much. And so a lot of van dwellers can be at our place for weeks or even months. And we just, like, don't have to see them that much unless we want to. Yeah, I was going to ask, is it like, do you have this kind of community vibe to your lifestyle or is there this separation? Uh, No, it's pretty good separation. I think the community vibe, like every morning, I I normally get up first with our daughter and and play with her outside. And she's always like, Uncle Steven, Uncle Steven. And we'll like wander out and we'll find one of the guys is living in his trailer behind the garage. and, And he's normally cooking breakfast and we'll see him. And, you know, but then he works and he climbs and he does whatever. And so a lot of days of the week, his truck's already gone. And you're like, oh, we don't see Uncle Steven. But like, oh, but Uncle Josh is out there because he's here for like two months in his van. And you're like, oh, we'll go hang out with Uncle Josh and play for a bit. You know, and like, I think I think that you get the good community vibe in the the sort of serendipity where you never quite know who you're going to see or what they're doing because some people are getting up really early to go climbing and some people are on rest days and they're just like lazing about drinking coffee. And I think that that is a nice aspect. And honestly, with raising kids now, I really like it because... I think it's a great way for my daughter just to play with different people and meet different people and see. It's funny. We're still looking for a name for baby number two. And uh, I, I just started joking that we should name her Wendy because she hangs out with the Lost Boys nonstop because they're like all <laughs> these random like homeless men living outside. It's like a total Peter Pan complex. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you've nailed that. It's done. <laughs> totally. I know. The thing is, my wife and I don't love the name Wendy, but it is so perfect. <laughs> Um, I remember really vividly when we were in Greenland, you know, we hadn't spent any time together at that point. And I asked you really early on in the expedition because Aldo had had his first kid, I'd had my first kid and you'd had yours at a really similar time. And I asked you how having a baby had changed you and you were like, it hasn't, like not at all. Is that still true now? Or now that she's like a toddler, 
and she's a bit older, have you changed as a result of her being born? I, th- I think it's a slow and steady, like gradual, gradual change. Because uh, I basically think that as I have more of a relationship with her, you know, people are like, oh, do you feel an obligation to your daughter? And I'm like, as a newborn, certainly not. But now as a toddler, I'm like, you know, she does legitimately miss me if I'm gone or like she'll like ask for me and we'll chat and we like actually have a relationship. There are things that we enjoy doing together and we, you know, we play in certain ways and it's, it's fun. And so I think that as she becomes more of a real human, I, I certainly feel more of an obligation to her. I mean, we'll, you know, we'll see how that plays out in terms of climbing and, and risk taking and all those kinds of things. But, um, but I would say that, that as, yeah, as I get more of a relationship with my daughter, I feel, uh, you know, yeah, I'm like getting softer, like all the cliche things, you know, where you're like, oh, you're now you're a big softie. I'm like, oh, it's great. I'm like, I love playing with my daughter. Yeah. Do you mind that you're becoming softer? Well, that's kind of the thing, though. It's like, I'm like, what am I becoming softer? I'm like, yeah, I'm spending more time at home. Yeah, I'm playing with my daughter more. Like, maybe I'll wind up being more emotional and those kinds of things. But now I'm sort of like, is that softer? Because like, when it comes down to it, like, you know, if I have to bike to Alaska in terrible conditions, like, I still can, you know, like, that's, that's fine. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I don't know, like, is that, I don't know, we'll see. Like, I think I'm capable of the same things if, if I want to, the question is whether or not you want to. I, this is like, just my view, right? Actually, but, actually, so, so, well, no, sorry, you go on. I got something else to say too. Well, it's super, super quick. I just think you're becoming a better man. That's how I view it of myself. Like, I just think like a little bit of the death of ego, a little bit of like, I finally feel like I've got a family who love me. I feel like I'm a good dad. My wife thinks I'm a good dad. Gives me this new purpose. And that doesn't stop me doing all the stuff that I've done with you and Leo and all these other people. I just feel like I'm a better man, specifically man as a person. Yeah. And you're like, and and you're like, does that make me soft? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe that makes me like better. <laughs> yeah. I think it does. I, yeah. I'm, I'm going to say it. I think you're like, well, fuck, whether it's soft or whether it's not, it's better. It is better. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with that. But wh- what I was going to say is that I get a lot of questions with like, you know, like, have you stopped soloing because of childhood or like, you know, are you, you know, yeah, basically, have you gone soft? And part of it, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm sure family's going to have an impact and I probably will do like less, fewer extreme things or whatever, who knows. But the more I think about it, a lot of it is because I've done so many of the things that I want to do, you know, and, and I, I've been hanging out with a lot of friends here, like, you know, all, all the Lost Boys, like living in the plays, living in their vans, and they're all like adventuring, doing all these things. And like everything that they're excited to do every day, I'm like, I've done that. You know, like 10 years ago, I did that. Like 15 years ago, I did the second ascent of that. Or, you know, like I've done all the hard routes in Red Rock. Like, I've, I mean, and obviously there are things I haven't done in climbing and things that I'm working on. But when people are like, oh, you know, like, where's your appetite for risk? I'm kind of like, like, if you can name a route in the Western US that's classic that I haven't soloed that, that I should, I'm like, I'll give you five bucks. You know what I mean? Like, like, I would love to have more good projects, more goals around here. But I'm kind of like, I'm like, I don't know. You know, like, I've, I've definitely done the obvious things. But I think, you know, on a global ranking, you've probably climbed more moves than almost anybody in existence. So, like, do you think that, to what extent are you just, your priorities changing a tiny bit? Like, I'm sure you'll be a passionate well, totally. forever, right? But... Totally. I mean, yeah. I mean, this summer on the Alaska trip we were talking about, Tommy and I did 12,000 feet of rock climbing in four days in the Bugaboos and then kept biking north towards Alaska. 
And you're kind of like, our four-day trip to the Bugaboos is like most people's like season of climbing. You know what I mean? And you're kind of like, I don't know. And I've just had so many days like that with like, or like doing the hurt, like this big traverse in Red Rock I did last year. You know, I mean, the hurt, the hurt itself, the one day, the like 36 hours or whatever it took me to, to do the traverse is like a season of climbing for, for average. You know, it's like a ton of different routes and tons of big hikes. And it's, it's like this crazy traverse of the whole range. But then the prep that I did to do the hurt, you know, basically learning all the different segments and trying all these different ways. And a lot of the ways didn't work out. And, you know, I got lost and had like crazy adventures in the canyons. Turns out there are a bunch of canyoneering routes in Red Rock, one of which I went down and down climbed like 15 rappels because I was like, who knew that there were canyoneering routes in here? You know, I was like, holy shit. You know, so I'm like having survival experiences like coming down the canyons. <laughs> it's like basically, you know, the months of prep that lead up to that, you wind up just doing so much that you're kind of like, I think I'm good. You know, like I've had a lot of adventures in the canyons. Like I don't need to do that again necessarily. Uh, you know, like I'm, I'm happy focusing on other aspects of climbing for now. I've just been like training in the garage and raising my daughter and doing my thing. I'm like, that seems, that seems fine. I don't know. Yeah. I think, you know, we touched on this in base camp in Alaska, but you're doing a, you know, very good job of explaining it now. It just, maybe you're just simmering a little bit. It's just, you know, you said to me in Alaska, I'm worried the fire's going out a little bit. And I was like, kind of like, maybe that's a really good thing. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, the thing is, though, it's fun to sort of attack life with intensity, you know, to like have big adventures every day and to and to like wake up every day chomping at the bit with like, I'm going to do something rad today. You know, I mean, you know, that's a great way to lead your life. And it's and it gives you a lot of purpose and it's super exciting. But it is hard to know if you can do that forever. You know, at a certain point, you're like, okay, I've done a lot. And actually, I've so I've talked to several of my friends who are kind of on the fence about having kids or not. And, you know, sort of professional climbers or sort of semi-professional climbers. Because I've been a professional climber for, uh, I don't know, 16, 17 years or something, let's say. And, and I'm 38. So basically, I could do double that by the time I'm 55. And I mean, there are a lot of like professional climbers at 55 right now that are basically still doing it. You know, you look at somebody like Peter Croft, who I think is even older than that. He's still like a sponsored climber. He's getting out all the time. He's doing his thing. Or like the Hoobers, you know, are probably 50 and still like, still kind of in it. And so in theory, I could double my career as a professional climber. But I'm like, if I think about having to do it all again, I'm like, that makes me feel so tired. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm to do all of it again. Like the nonstop expeditions, the nonstop, like just charging. And, and, and I think part of that's because, you know, a lot of the things that really capture your imagination when you're young, it's like after you do them a ton of times, you're kind of like, you know, like I'm good. I've done that a lot. And I mean, yeah, it's funny because I'm basically just advocating for middle age here, you know, <laughs> but like... I get it. Like I'm slightly younger than you, but not much. And I feel the same. You know, I've done nothing compared to you, but I've done a lot compared to most. And I'm a bit like if if I didn't get invited on an expedition ever again, yeah, in some senses I'd be sad, but I've done so much cool stuff that But you wouldn't you know, be crushed, yeah. Or yeah. or if you were invited on one expedition a year for the rest of your life, you'd be like, you know, that's pretty good. <laughs> like I don't need to do three trips a year. Like I think one is fine. Or like one every other year. Like that's fine. Like you can raise your two kids, have a nice time, hang out with your wife and do a trip every once in a while. And be like, yeah. you know what? That's that's a good life. It's a priority shift. I mean, it's this, you know, people talk about it negatively and we're kind of joking about it negatively, but like that drift into middle age, I mean, at the moment it feels kind of glorious. Like Totally. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. I think for me, it, it helps to know that 
that I probably still could go with the same intensity if I had the right goal, if I had the right. And I think that that was a big part of this expedition to Alaska with Tommy is I think that he wanted to see for himself that he could, he could still do that if he wanted to. And then after spending two months and biking, you know, 2,400 miles to Alaska and climbing a bunch of big walls at the end of it, you're like, you know what, we can still do it if we want to, you know, it's like whether or not we need to do a trip like that again, like, I don't, I don't know, but, but it's still there if, if you choose to do it. Yeah, totally. So what are your priorities now? Well, I mean, we're kind of waiting for baby number two, but I'm, uh, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to climb 9A. I've been working on this hard sport route and, um, mostly I've been trying to just like physically train. I, I kind of, I'm like, I want to see some, some personal transformation in terms of like strength that I haven't really before. And, uh, and so far I, I think it's going pretty well. We'll see. But yeah, Tommy and I sort of jokingly, actually in the, uh, in the Bugaboo's base camp, Sonny Trotter, who's like a Canadian professional climber, uh, was was technically the rigger for the trip. So he was doing some of the, the rope work for for the the filming that of what Tommy and I were climbing there. And so the three of us were in base camp there, and we sort of made this joking gentleman's agreement, like uh, or gentleman's wager as to who could get to nine A the soonest. Because Sonny climbed nine A way back in the day, and Sonny's really really strong. He's probably uh, naturally stronger than me or Tommy, but he's also got two kids. He's got a lot going on, you know, and then Tommy has technically climbed nine a or harder. Uh, but it, it was like 20 years ago as well. And he hasn't really climbed that hard. Actually, no, he climbed that hard on the Dawn wall and that was only six, seven years ago. But, but again, you know, two kids, a lot going on. It hasn't climbed that hard in a while. I've sadly never climbed that hard because I did wonder that it was supposed to be nine a, but it's been downgraded and, uh, <laughs> by, by me as well. And so, uh, so I've climbed sort of like near that grade several times, but not I've never really been that strong. I've always been kind of more of an adventure rock climber. And so between the three of us, we're kind of like, oh, we're like three middle-aged dads just like racing for a grade that that nowadays the most elite climbers in the world onsite that grade, you know? And so you're kind of like, it's not as if it's cutting edge climbing, but I think for the three of us, it would be meaningful to sort of get back to that like high level of fitness, or in my case, just get there at all. Um, and so it's been, it's been fun, you know, it gives us gives us something to work on. It just seems from listening to you like, I don't know, I get this sense from things you've said to me and stuff I've seen in films before and hanging out with you a bit now, like that maybe you in your 20s, like, correct me if I'm wrong here, right? But like had something to prove or show the world or like there was some sort of ego or insecurity that needed fulfilling, whereas now it just does not seem like that's there at all. And all of your motivation is completely intrinsic. Yeah, I don't know if all my motivation is intrinsic because I still work, I support the family, whatever. But um, but yeah, I think that's that's a fair generalization. I mean, and I think that's probably true for most people is that in your young 20s, you're like hungry. I mean, also you're just coursing with testosterone probably and you're like, I just want to get laid and if I can just prove myself to the world and I can finally get laid. You know, and especially for somebody like me that totally lacks social skills and like lacks charm and lacks any of the ways in which you normally attract the opposite sex, you know, you're like, I just need to do something meaningful. And then maybe somebody will, will notice, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah now, now as, as a 30 year old, late 30 year old, you know, I'm kind of like, whatever, like, who cares? Like, that just, that just does not matter as much to me. Yeah. Do you think you're happy now? Yeah, I'm probably happier. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. I'm happier. I mean, I'm way less angstful and less, you know, there's way less emotional turmoil. Yeah, like stiller waters, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. 
So when is baby number two due? Mm, February. Actually, she's uh, due on baby number one's second birthday. So we'll see. Uh, well, you know, we'll see how it plays out. But in theory, it's uh, the same day. All I will say, as a father of a two and a one-year-old, is strap in. <laughs> Except yours are even closer together, huh? Yeah, super close. Uh, there's like a year and a half between them. Oh yeah, I feel like yeah, we'll have exactly two years. I think that might make it slightly easier. Yeah, of course you never know because you guys will just be out of it sooner. Like yeah, out of the craziest like we're nearly out of it now, but it's still yeah. And with my wife working full time in theater, it's like it's hardcore right now. Like I am a stay at home dad a lot of the time. <laughs> but I'm into it. Like I really enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, totally, totally. This is just a different kind of expedition. It's like a very long term expedition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because I've always like read all the the sort of parent cliches where people are like you know raising my children was the most uh, like the biggest project of my life, or the most satisfying you know thing of my life, and blah blah blah. And I've always kind of been like, uh, it's almost like a parenting trope. Like you always hear that kind of stuff of like this is the biggest, most meaningful thing in my life. But now raising raising my daughter, I'm like, I can see how this kind of becomes like a life project where you're like, totally. like raising your your children well, like feels like the most important thing that you'll ever contribute. And I'm like, oh, this is you know, I'm like, I'm living the cliche. Yeah. And the other one is I always used to like never, I could never wrap my head around all these people posting photos of their kids on the internet when like they'd done something totally insignificant. And I was mm. like, why do you think any of us care about that? Whereas now I will show anyone who will listen <laughs> the fact that my son can't walk, but can nearly walk. It's like, I know that nobody cares, but I really but care. But you care. Yeah, so much. Um, yeah. Anyway. We digress, um, and we're kind of at time. I'm, yeah, I'm like, should, should we just both go back to playing with our kids? We're both yeah, kind of like, yeah, podcast over. Let's go back. Should I bring baby June in here so we can just play? No, well, actually, I am in. I'm in a rented studio in London because I'm going to go meet my wife, and we are having a couples night with no children together tonight. Oh my gosh! Yeah, first oh, wow. time in a long time. Wow. Kind of, the agenda, as I planned it out, is we're going to go for dinner, then have a big argument, and be in bed by nine p.m. That's that's what I like. Actually, so my wife's pregnant right now, but so we've been scheduling our arguments for as early as possible so that we can also be asleep by nine so we can be up early enough to take care of the baby again. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we, we've had a, yeah, it has, it's not that crazy, but uh, but there are definitely a few nights where I'm like, if we're going to argue about something, can we start at like 7.30 tonight so we can still be asleep by nine? <laughs> you don't like, know how hard-hitting and true that is. <laughs> um, yeah, Totally. Totally. We, we had a couple line, like like in in the last two months we had a couple where it's like i i was at a work thing and came back at like midnight and then basically got yelled at until like one in the morning about like unreal and i was like could we please just do this tomorrow at like eight you know so that we could we could like get enough sleep and then still so you're like i don't think anyone's ever resolved anything at at midnight you know like i don't think this is the way no no on that light and breezy note we'll call it but um I always ask the same two questions at the end of every episode. Mm. Um, the first is what scares you? Uh, death. The great beyond. I don't know. I mean, what, what, else, what else scares you? I don't know. No one's ever asked me. That's a whole different can of worms. Um, I don't know. Cr chronic pain, maybe? Like debilitating pain? I had a feeling you. I had a feeling you'd look at me like this is a stupid question. Um, what brings you hope? 
Oh, yeah. These are terrible closing questions. Do you get good <laughs> answers from people? Yeah, really good answers. Really? Yeah. Huh. I don't but know. I, mean, I what, knew. What, 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 I was thinking about, I mean, we're breaking all the rules of this conversation, but it's great. I knew that when I asked you these questions, when I was doing my little plan before, I was like, he's going to tell me these are stupid. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm predictable. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, what gives you hope? Like what, what kind of context? Uh, people vary like really wildly from, everybody says they're kids, obviously, um, but that's inevitable and a little cliched, but people do and it's true of them. Um, oh God, there's so many. I mean, what, what, no one's ever asked me, which is like, what gives me hope? Music gives me hope. Wild places, traveling with friends in interesting environments. Um, do those give you hope or are those just nice and you like doing them? I think they give me hope. I think they make me think that like, this is all worth doing and life's going to be amazing and it's worth fighting for and there's a future worth building. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just don't know if I, yeah. Um, I think I'm I mean, just... in, in, in the context, uh, no, in, in the context of all the environmental ranting that we were, we were covering earlier in the episode, I would say what gives me hope, I mean, cause there's so much negative environmental news out there and, and, you know, everything we're talking about, you're sort of like, oh, you know, degradation of the natural world, blah, blah, blah. What makes me slightly optimistic, though, is the fact that they're, that all the solutions exist and like technologically and, and like basically humans have the capabilities to, to solve all the problems that we face. We just haven't chosen to yet. And so I think what gives me some optimism or hope is the fact that, that the answers are all there. We just need to choose to implement them at some point. And you know, for whatever, well, for a whole myriad reasons we haven't chosen to yet, but I'm like, but we could anytime, you know, it's one of those things where you're kind of like, like when, when you have like a really bad habit and you've been like acting poorly for, actually, I'm sure you know, huh? Cause you've had some bad habits in the past. I've, I've heard, you know, <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> shh, shh. but like basically, you know, when you know that you're doing something wrong for a long period of time, like in some ways it's an incredible you know, a very hopeful position to be in because you're like, at any moment, I can turn my life around. And and that's kind of how I feel with with the environmental crisis, like basically with, with human behavior on earth is you're like, well, we all know we're doing the wrong thing. At, you know, at any moment, we can choose to do the right thing. We just haven't chosen to yet. That was a really good answer. It just took a little bit of poking. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, just, well, it's the shape of the question that you need, you know? You email me some notes and I'll work on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly exactly ace we'll leave it there thank you very much no no pleasure pleasure chatting thanks for listening if you want to get in touch then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio and finally as always please do leave us an honest review on itunes they're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience 